Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into this week's episode, I'd like to remind you about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spike supporter and get access to a number of exciting perks. Spike supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure anyone, anywhere can read us. We are really grateful for that. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. And now on with the show. All right, we did this to the planet. We burned lots of fossil fuels, but we did it for good reasons. It did lift people out of poverty. It did give us a high quality of life. It did enable our children to be healthier and live for longer. These are all good things. It's just unfortunate that it also took this toll on the planet. To me, it's just now a case of, well, let's fix that. It's not unfixable, right? But the discussion has become very drawn into all of these other issues that I would say almost are separate from what I'm talking about, which is let's just bring down the emissions and improve quality of life for everybody. Isn't that a really good human goal to have? Hello and welcome to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Zeon Lights. Zeon is an environmentalist writer and activist. She was a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion and was the founder and editor of Extinction Rebellion's newspaper Hourglass. Today, she is an advocate for greater use of nuclear energy as a way of solving the problem of climate change. After leaving Extinction Rebellion, Zeon became the UK Director of Environmental Progress, a movement that makes the case for nuclear energy. And she has since founded Emergency Reactor, which can be found at emergencyreactor.org, a campaign group that argues that nuclear energy is safe and good and could allow humankind to maintain and even boost its living standards as it weans itself off fossil fuels. So Zion, we are we recently had the IPCC report. The climate change issue is once again all over the front pages of the papers. People are talking about it quite widely. And we're hearing the same kinds of arguments that we always hear, which is that obviously climate change is this huge problem. And in order to tackle it, we need to reduce our carbon footprint. We need to educate people to use less. We need to rethink what kinds of energy sources we rely on and possibly shift to more renewable sources of energy. It's a very familiar sounding discussion for anyone who's been around for the past 20 years or so. You have taken a rather different view recently, and I wanted to start off by asking you if you could just briefly say what that view is and then what brought about that change in your thinking. Well, you're absolutely correct that we've had the latest report. It pretty much says what the reports always say. Everything that the IPCC predicted is coming to pass. 
But the bit that I would disagree with is the solutions that you're summarizing. I don't think it's all about switching to just renewables or using less. And I think actually we have been stuck in that thinking for decades mm. and it hasn't gotten us anywhere. So I am taking a very different tack now where I say that actually it doesn't matter what the source of energy is so long as it's low carbon. Um, and actually the IPCC report does say that we need a combination of renewables and nuclear energy. So omitting that is wrong anyway, which you'll find everybody does tend to omit <laughs> it when they report on it or when they campaign about it. Um, and also in terms of reducing energy use, you know, I, I authored an entire book on this years ago. It was on how to live with a low carbon footprint. I completely advocate for it. I still have quite a low carbon footprint just because I didn't learn to drive and other, other lifestyle changes that I made. But the reality is that people aren't making those changes. And at some point, we just have to accept that they're not being made. We don't want to enforce them. We don't want that. We don't, I mean, maybe some, some campaigners do want that, but I don't think we should have eco-fascism or authoritarianism over this. So if it's not happening, if the best behavioral scientists haven't found a way for people to live with the significantly, you know, less emissions that campaign groups have been pushing for for decades, then we need to look at other solutions that are actually going to work and that people want to live with. And for me, that is just cheap, abundant, clean energy for everybody. So I'll come back to the question of this cheap, abundant, clean energy on which I completely agree with you. And and the benefits of nuclear, that's something I really want to talk to you about, because I think that's a, an incredibly important argument to get into the public sphere. But just for a moment, just to stick with a bit of the environmentalist stuff and a little bit about your journey. So lots of people will know you as someone who was involved in Extinction Rebellion and may still be involved in Extinction Rebellion, you, you can tell us. And people will, some people will know you from the interview you did with Andrew Neil, in which you were talking about, you know, a, an apocalyptic scenario. And Andrew Neil, as is his fashion, was pushing back very hard against that argument. So I wonder, so when I see Extinction Rebellion protests or when I encounter Extinction Rebellion activists, the, the argument I often hear from those kinds of people is sometimes quite an authoritarian one. So it is about, increasing the cost of flights, for example, which I think would price poor people out of flying, which could be a problem, or, you know, having a meat tax or other forms of sometimes quite punitive measures that would restrict people's ability to make certain choices. So there is this emphasis on the stick argument rather than the carrot argument. And so have you broken away from that kind of stuff completely? Or are there still views that you share in common with Extinction Rebellion and that you think they have an important argument to make? Well, first of all, Extinction Rebellion is a broad church. So I can't, I wouldn't say there are views necessarily that I agree or disagree with. There, You could say that there are the three demands, which obviously as a spokesperson for the group, I did promote and I did talk about. And I would say I've moved away from those demands because mm. if you look very carefully at them, the only solution they really push for is the third solution, which is for citizen assemblies, which is a political system change solution and not really to do with climate change. And actually, I think a lot of people have fallen for that. And even um, other groups now on Fridays for the Future and Greta Thunberg, you hear what they're talking about when they're talking about climate action. They're talking about system change, which I think, A, is, I mean, it is a completely different issue. If you want a different system, fine, but that's mm. got nothing to do with bringing down emissions. And B, actually, it stalls action on climate change because you're talking about a complete overhaul of the way we do things when actually we've got this pressing issue that we just need to sort out. So I think they're completely separate things. And I did have an awareness of that when I came into Extinction Rebellion, but I generally thought it's still good for them to have a voice um, for, of someone who promotes the science and who isn't kind of in that doom space. Um, but as you as I found on the Andrew Neil show, which is <laughs> I quit after that because I felt that actually I'd done it 
I had done it for a while. I'd done it for a year. And at that point, I couldn't do it anymore because I sat there and I wanted to talk about things like nuclear energy. Mm. And I had already changed my mind on that. I wanted, and I felt that I couldn't as a spokesperson. And I know that if I had done, they would have been very upset with me. So I couldn't as a spokesperson. I also started thinking about, well, if I'd said renewables, they would have been happy. So there's something going on there that's not an official view, but it is a view that, you know, many of them hold. So I did have to kind of separate very publicly just to, you know, just to get back into communicating the information that I want to be able to communicate, which I think is important because otherwise they are one of the loudest voices on this issue. And that worries me because actually they're not, they're not pushing for the right solutions. So on the question of the apocalyptic side of this discussion, I think that's quite, uh, that's something that I'm quite keen to just touch upon with you a little bit, because I think it does feed into what we'll come on to shortly, which is the arguments, I think the incredibly important arguments that you're, you're making for uh, abundant nuclear power and, and the way in which that can really help us to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels while having a world of plenty for everyone. But in relation to the apocalyptic side of the climate change argument, this is something that Michael Schellenberger has written a lot about and uh, beyond Lomborg, of course, you know, environmentalists who would describe themselves, I guess, as sceptical environmentalists. So they are very devoted to the idea of having a greener, more eco-friendly planet, but they are reluctant to embrace the more apocalyptic narrative that's been pushed by uh, the some sections of the green movement. So on the on that apocalyptic side of things, how how problematic do you think that became? So, for example, if you have Extinction Rebellion activists on the streets, often with school children saying, I don't think I'll have a future and holding up placards saying, I'm worried that the world will be dead before I get old. And people predicting the deaths of billions of people. Doesn't that have the effect of inculcating a culture of fear and grating against any kind of activism or rational discussion that we actually need to have? It does, yes. And I raised this when I was in Extinction Rebellion as a member and there were there were several of us that did. There were some scientists in Extinction Rebellion, and I've been pleased to see IPCC climate scientists as well speak out against the kind of doom mongering. Mm. And I don't think it's helpful because actually there's a lot of research that says people are paralysed when they feel fear, and they're not going to act. So it's not particularly helpful, you know. And and wh- the reason I got caught out on Andrew Neil's show was because the first thing he brought up was that claim that a co-founder of Extinction Rebellion had made about billions of people dying Mm. by the end of the century. And I refused to defend it. And I came across looking really bad because people said they can't defend their figures, but actually I refused to defend it. And because I had been in talks after that had happened and said, we have to retract that figure. And it had become a huge internal issue in Extinction Rebellion, which is a broad church. And there were lots of people on my side saying we really should retract it. He shouldn't have said it. And there were lots of people saying, no, because if it wakes people up, it doesn't matter. And it never got resolved. And then I sat in that seat and it was brought up and I couldn't defend it. But I also was a very good spokesperson because really I should have defended it because it was their figure. And even since then, they have issued a statement defending it. So Mm. I don't think that's useful. I don't think that's helpful. All that happens is it doesn't play out. And then people think the whole thing was a hoax. How Mm. is that helpful? And if you just step away from a minute as well from climate change, it's always all about climate change. Yes. Okay. There are issues there. But if you step away from a minute, there is lots of research that shows that deaths from air pollution are really high. Air pollution from fossil fuels is over 8 million people a year. And that is the poorest people, right? That's the people living in the most deprived areas. That's happening right now. That's been, that's a crisis that's been happening for decades, it doesn't affect us. We don't have to care about it. That's the reality. That's the reality of it. And actually, we should care about that. And that to me is enough of an argument to just get off the stuff anyway, because 
that's not helping people. You, you read about um, kids in Poland who have, you know, they have soot on their windows. They have really bad respiratory issues. You know, the rates of asthma are really high because they live near these coal power plants. And it is always the poorest people and often people of color who have to live by the, by the coal fire power stations. And I just think, We've got to stop doing that. It's that simple to me. But we don't even have that discussion because it's all become about just climate change. And I think there are actually lots of different reasons, including as well, cheap, abundant energy for everyone, which we know having that energy lifts people out of poverty. That's a good thing. Everybody should be lifted out of poverty. That's not going to happen if we're saying we have to scale back. And now we're looking at other countries saying you have to scale back. Now yeah. we had our, we had our high quality yeah. of life. Our lights work, but you have to scale back. That's actually really worries me that that is like a core thread of, of discussion in the climate movement. And I've been challenging it a lot. Which, as you can imagine, is quite a controversial thing. But I think it's about time. It's about time that we did it. You know, we've been having the same discussions for decades and it's going to change. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, one of the most heated arguments, no pun intended, that I had with an Extinction Rebellion activist was one on one of their protests, which I was attending as an observer and I was writing about it. And I was handed a leaflet which had a, a, a number of bullet points, one of which was the bullet point said, Africa is on fire. So I said to this person who handed it to me, I said, this is not true. Africa is not on fire. Africa is also many, many different countries. It's not just one country. It's a complex continent with lots of cultures, lots of countries, lots of different levels of development. And also the point I made to them was that these parts of the world surely need to catch up with us before we can start telling them what they ought to be doing about their environment. So one question I wanted to ask you in relation to that was, how out of touch do you think Extinction Rebellion sometimes was? Now, my uh, encounters with them, I've often encountered people who are sometimes quite posh. There are a couple of quite aristocratic people in, in the green movement. I know that's not all of them, so I don't want to generalize. And there is this way in which they talk about ordinary people's lives. You know, what does it matter if you don't have your holiday abroad once a year? That's not really that important. It, it, what does it matter if you can't drive your kid to school with no sense of what it might be like to live in the countryside when you don't have easy public transport? Do you think one of the problems with Extinction Rebellion was that it was quite out of touch with the concerns of ordinary people, which is that they want to live nice, comfortable, wealthy lives. Well, I think what happened at Canning Town illustrated that quite clearly. And, but it did spark a lot of discussions on the inside, which was good because those discussions need to happen internally. Um, I think you've missed out something there as well. Consumerism. When you're poor, when you grow up poor, like I did, daughter of immigrants, you know, very working class fa parents of factory workers, mm. you want to consume. You love yeah. the fact that <laughs> yeah. you can finally consume, you can buy something and you can own it. That's an amazing thing. And you're kind of telling us, you know, not to do that. There are a lot of issues tied up in there. And there is research that showed that Extinction Rebellion was predominant, is predominantly a middle class movement. And I think a lot of that ties in with its main aim, its main strategy, which is mass arrest, right? That's not going to appeal to a lot of people who aren't comfortable uh, being put in that position. And again, we had these internal arguments, but what I would say is there are so many people with different ideas in Extinction Rebellion that things just go round and round and nothing gets decided. And this is a really important thing that was raised, especially because of Canning Town, because they had chosen a deprived area to yeah. target because they knew that, because I, you know, I knew it was happening and I kind of, I was against it. And I said, can't you just go go for somewhere with bankers, you know, go for Notting Hill or something if you're going to, or do a different action, but they didn't want to do a different action. And uh, and they said, no, 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 because we're choosing this area because there's less security. Yes, of course it is because it's a deprived area. <laughs> but anyway, they chose to do it anyway. And then there was the whole backlash and that did spark a lot of really good discussions. But I still, I still didn't feel like 
that they they were really understanding the issues and moving on. And I think that is a problem of it just being a lot of people who do have a certain amount of privilege and then it's hard for them to really understand, even though I was very vocal and I brought up these issues again and again, and especially on the energy front, because we cannot tell these other countries that they can't have clean, abundant energy. We have it. Yeah. We have it all the time. We take it for granted, right? And they don't just want clean water. They want laptops. I've got yeah. a laptop. Yeah. They want a laptop. How can I say, you don't get one of those because we trash the climate by having all of these things, you know, you just can't. And, and, and every time I looked at that, it just kept coming back to nuclear energy because, you know, you look at France's, France's emissions are very low. They have one of the countries that has the best low emissions in the world. They have about 70% nuclear. They did this back in the seventies with seventies Aerotech. And you kind of think, well, actually they, you look at their electricity uh, and they weren't doing it because of climate change. They were doing it for energy security. They didn't want to de be dependent on foreign oil and or gas. And their electricity is really cheap. It's really cheap. It's like twice as cheap as German electricity. So actually, it really does just benefit ordinary people. And, you know, I'm making this argument all the time. And I find that just a lot of the activists, they don't really think or care about the cost to ordinary people. And I think it's kind of sad because it's almost like caring for nature has become very separate to caring for people. Whereas mm. for me, people are part of nature. You can't just put people aside. And, and actually, sometimes you prod this and you get really into the discussion. And people will say, wow, you know, it's our fault. We we cause the problem. And I don't like that kind of almost like religious self-flagellation. Mm. We deserve to suffer. No, actually the people that are going to suffer most and are suffering the most did the least. And anyway, I don't agree that we did, mm. we deserve to suffer. We did, we did, all right, we did this to the planet. We burned lots of fossil fuels, but we did it for good reasons. It did lift people out of poverty. It did give us a high quality of life. It did enable our children to be healthier and live for longer. These are all good things. It's just unfortunate that it also took this toll on the planet. To me, it's just now a case of let's fix that it's not unfixable right but but we've just it's the discussion has become very drawn into all of these other issues that i would say almost are separate from what i'm talking about which is let's just bring down the emissions and improve quality of life for everybody isn't that a really good human goal to have hi it's fraser here producer of the brendan o'neill show how do you choose which internet service provider to use? Do you look at the price, the speed, the ease of setting up? Really, the sad thing is that most of us have very little choice because ISPs operate like monopolies in the regions they serve. They can then use this monopoly power to take advantage of customers. Data caps, streaming throttles, the list goes on. But worst of all, most ISPs log your internet activity and sell that data onto other big tech companies or advertisers. So to prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. So what is ExpressVPN? It's a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your ISP can't see any of your activity. Just think about how much of your life is on the internet. Sadly, everyone you've messaged, all the sites you've visited, and all the videos you've watched gets tracked by the tech giants who can sell your information for profit. That's the reason I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. And ExpressVPN does all of this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by people who know, like CNET and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity to sell off your information. 
Protect yourself with the VPN I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash Brendan. That's expressvpn.com slash Brendan to get three extra months for free when you sign up. Go to expressvpn.com slash Brendan right now to learn more. And that's what I want to dig into now with you in a bit more depth, the kind of arguments you're making about uh, energy and how we get it and, and, and how we can make it cleaner. I think it, just on the point you made, I think the Canning Town point you made is, is really important. You know, I, I thought the battle of Canning Town was quite extraordinary because this was essentially pretty middle class activists in confrontation with working class people trying to get to work. And I just thought that was a real uh, self-defeating uh, a tactic for Extinction Rebellion. And uh, also, there were also gatherings at the Smithfield Meat Market and Billingsgate Fish Market by people who are opposed to eating animals and opposed to eating fish. And of course, those markets are run and staffed by working class people who rely on, on it for their living. And lots of those working class people were saying, you know, who are these people to come in here and disrupt our day's work? And all of that stuff, I think, I think Extinction Rebellion underestimates the extent to which that drips into people's minds as proof that environmentalism has become this kind of quite elitist movement. But um, in relation to the question of whether this is an apocalyptic end of world religious problem or a practical problem that mankind can solve if we put our minds to it, I think that's, that's really at the crux of a lot of this. And I think one of the things that you've done really well over the past few months is to make the latter case that this is something we can resolve if we're rational about it, and especially if we embrace the positive virtues of nuclear power. So just to kick off that side of the discussion, could you just give our listeners a a sense of why something like nuclear energy is so important and why it could be quite transformative for life on Earth if we were to embrace nuclear energy in a meaningful way? Well, I've given the example of France, but if you look at the countries around the world that have decarbonized, that have very low emissions, they are always using a combination of nuclear and hydropower. Now, hydropower is going to become more of an issue because of water shortages, but also you can only have it in certain areas. You know, we can't have it here in Britain. It all depends on the landscape. So the places that can have it do have it. And that that's great. That works. But hydropower is not the same as solar or wind. And it gets lumped in with this kind of renewables. Renewables will fix it. But actually, they can't do it alone, right? They can't do it alone. The research says that Experience has borne that out. Germany has spent billions on renewables while phasing out nuclear power and their emissions have gone up. They now have some of the dirtiest emissions of Europe, if not the world, you know, in the developed world. And frankly, it's immoral at this point. How dare they? Mm. They're importing coal. How can we say we're in a climate emergency? And it's almost, it's really ironic with Germany because people think of them as kind of climate leaders. But just look at the emissions. They're phasing out nuclear before coal. Fine. If they found a way to just do renewables, fine. They could have, but they still should have gotten off of coal first. And I really have to press home how bad this stuff is. I mean, people don't really think about, you know, why we don't think about it. Britain imports coal, right? We have wind turbines and we have solar panels. When it's not windy or sunny enough, those drop and we import coal to fill the gap. You don't have to take my word for it. You can check it every day. Electricitymap.org tells you what our energy mix is every day and you'll see nuclear is always kind of consistent, kind of 18%. And you'll see the wind up here in the solar and when they drop, the coal goes up. It happens all the time. That Now, that that is a very privileged thing, right? Because we don't have to care. Our lights still work. 
our laptops still work. Everything, everything works. Our hospitals work. We don't have to worry about it. But we, that cost of coal is exported to another country where people have respiratory issues. They have cancers. They have all of the issues that come from breathing in this, these awful fumes from, from these coal fired power stations, which have to exist somewhere. It's just that they don't exist here. And you can imagine, you can imagine what would happen if we tried to open one here. Mm. We wouldn't allow it. So we are literally just making other people breathe so that we can have our lifestyles. It's, it's just absolutely untenable. And I bring this up all the time. And you, what I find is most environmentalists haven't even thought about it. They haven't even thought about it. all they care about is here and what's going to happen to my children. And, and, and it's so apocalyptic for my children. And I've said, I have children, but there are already billions of people in the world living an apocalyptic reality like you're talking about because they are living in these areas and they are breathing these fumes and they live in poverty. Do you understand what living in poverty means? I mean, my parents moved here from poverty, so I've seen it firsthand. They don't have lights. They cook over little stoves. Women all have respiratory issues because they're burning like over these little wood stoves. It's a massive issue in India, but there's bad air pollution. They don't have access to medication or vaccines or health. They don't have healthcare. They don't have education. They are already living the apocalyptic nightmare that we are now selling as kind of this will happen to our children and later generations. What about them? We have to fix these issues. And now we're saying we don't want them to burn coal. And I get that. I understand that. But it's more complicated than that as well, right? And they've got to have something. And you've got all these NGOs and initiatives sending over solar panels to Africa Mm. and India. That is not what we had to develop. We did not have a little bit of intermittent power. That is not fair. And they cannot develop infrastructure with that. And they cannot develop a high quality of life with that. And it's absolutely immoral to pretend that they can. I think that it's such an important point that it's often the poorest people in the world who suffer from the worst forms of pollution because, you know, there is this fantasy among some eco-activists that if you have a very natural life, if you live close to nature, if you have a very modest existence, then you will be eco-friendly, you'll be happy, your life will be long and luxurious. But of course, for lots of very poor people in India, as you say, in Africa, in other parts of the world, that often means burning stuff within the home to keep warm, living in a polluted small environment, uh, often being at the mercy of nature in the way that we in the West, thankfully, are no longer, for the most part, at the mercy of nature because we've progressed, because we've industrialized, because we have these protections. So uh, I think that fantasy of the of the natural life is one that really needs to be challenged. Um, and I made this point in a discussion I had with an environmentalist on the radio a few years ago, talking about my family from the west of Ireland who lived presumably the kind of life that some environmentalists think is a good life. But in fact, it was a brutally short life. It was an incredibly hard life. And when nature went wrong, your life was turned completely and utterly upside down. So just in relation to what you've described very well there, which is that essentially what some in the West are doing is outsourcing their pollution to other nations. So we don't want coal stations here we think they're gross and if you open one if you try to open one in the uk there will be huge protests and there's very little thought given to the fact that there are a huge number of coal-fired stations elsewhere in the world who provide us with coal so this leads us to the question of nuclear of course again and the benefits of nuclear replacing those forms of energy so how good would nuclear be in terms of providing our energy? I mean, isn't it better than all the other forms of energy that we have? It's exceptional. 
it's truly exceptional. And you can take this from me because I didn't used to believe it. I was surrounded by environmentalists. I was very young, got involved in activism very young, kind of 15 years ago, was being arrested for climate action. And when you're surrounded by these environmentalists, you are anti-nuclear. You hear all of these stories. Greenpeace tells these stories. You just believe them. Why would you question it? Mm. Really bad stories about radiation and all these deaths and things. And I believed it for a long time until I started looking at data. And it's actually IP, IPCC was one of the things that convinced me because their report has that whole section on mitigation pathways by working group three on energy. And it says in there, we need nuclear to get out of this. There's no question. And it's quite a lot of nuclear, like nowhere is building that much yet. So we're not taking the action we need to because everybody conveniently ignores that part of the report, but it is in there. They've crunched the numbers. It's not just opinion. The only way to get off of fossil fuels is to replace them with nuclear. That's it. It's that simple. And, and you can have more renewables, but you still need a base load for when the generation isn't high enough, when it stops being windy or it stops being sunny, then you need something as a backup. And actually what's happening is a lot of fossil fuel companies are really happy about this, promoting renewables. I don't know if you've seen, mm. you know, the gas companies mm. saying they're perfect partners. Shell made an entire video in <laughs> French about it, about how they're perfect partners. I'll send you a link. It's amazing, really. And it's because they know that they we will be reliant on them. So long as we keep building just renewables, we have to have the nuclear to replace the fossil fuels. And that isn't just about climate, it is also about air pollution. This is a serious issue that's killing lots of people and poor people and children. And nobody cares, nobody's speaking for them because they're not in our country. So on the nuclear question, one thing that has always bugged me a little bit is the question of why environmentalists are so opposed to it. Now, I've spoken to lots of eco-modernists over the past few years, very interesting people, very principled people, driven by a rational desire, a reasoned desire to, to lessen the amount of pollution in the world, but also to continue providing people with what they need and what they want. And they're often very often pro-nuclear and they think nuclear will be a great source of energy for us. But the environmentalist movement more broadly remains quite passionately opposed to nuclear power. Now, one thing that you've written about and talked about is the exaggerated fears around nuclear power. Now, I remember this from when I was growing up. When I was at school, nuclear was a byword for dangerous amounts of waste. Of course, there was the Chernobyl accident. That was the great spectre of my childhood in many ways, as well as the nuclear weapons spectre. You know, the idea that nuclear by its very definition, gave rise to destruction and accidents and death. So we were, my generation were filled with these fears about nuclear, but that's exaggerated, isn't it? And actually the reality is rather different. It is exaggerated, but I don't think that just came from environmentalists. I think mm. lots of things happened around that. The media reported really irresponsibly. Look at the reporting about Fukushima. Nobody died because of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear meltdown. You can look that up. No, They died because there was a tsunami and it, uh, there was an earthquake. There was an earthquake that triggered a tsunami. And actually, that nuclear facility had waste stored on site. Didn't harm anyone. Nothing happened to it. The stuff is so like well managed. This is good news. In the worst case scenario, nobody nobody was harmed. But I didn't believe that. Again, so it's a combination of really bad media reporting. I think because it makes a good story, and it's very it's easy to make it scary. Environmental groups did then pick up on it, like Greenpeace. Greenpeace have been really heavy, and they're still really heavy, and WWF on going with that anti-nuclear fear-mongering narrative. have been challenging them on this a lot. And also, the other issue is weapons. People, So there's this kind of old-school boomer environmentalist mm. hangover from the Cold War where nuclear just means weapons, so they can't separate 
those things out, weapons and energy. Actually, you'd be better off using using this this tech for for energy, wouldn't you, than, than weapons? <laughs> yeah. But I've had these discussions, and I find that that fear is so ingrained. And once it's there, it's very hard to unpick. And those voices have been very predominant in the environmental movement for a long time, a long, long time. And so actually, you know, a lot of us now who are speaking out and kind of challenging them, that's never happened before. So I'm hopeful that that will actually spark some change for the first time because they haven't been challenged. They're not used to being challenged and they need to be challenged because actually they are the ones that are committing us to any kind of apocalyptic future if that's what happens. They are the ones committing us. If we had all done what France did in the 70s, there would be no climate change, right? There would not be 8 million deaths a year from air pollution because everywhere would have built nuclear tech and we'd have low emissions. That's it. If we'd done that in the 70s with old tech, I mean, it's much better now. Japan's building new reactors in just three years now. But it's it's all, sl- you know, in Britain, it's very slowed down and clunky and the government won't invest in it. So, so investors pull out. It's very hard to even get it off the ground because of all the years and years of protest and fear mongering. And all of that has spilled into popular culture. You think, you know, stuff like The Simpsons, where it's just even even people who aren't particularly environmentalists just have it in the back of their minds as this really awful thing which is why challenging them is really good because then they think about it and they're often like very reasonable the people on the fence in the middle they just never have never heard those arguments before but then they go oh okay i didn't realize that and it's in the ipcc i support this so that's i'm hopeful that that will help to change changing the dialogue will help to change the outcomes but that's one of the great ironies of all of this, isn't it? Because I, I remember anti-nuclear protests when I was young. I was always being invited onto them. There were always posters around protests at this nuclear power station, protest against the building of a new nuclear power station. The great twisted irony of all of that is that those protesters, possibly unwittingly, helped to ensure that we would have some of the environmental problems we have today because they distracted or they played a role at least in distracting our focus away from investing in nuclear towards being reliant by default on fossil fuel energies for the basic fact that mankind needs and desires certain things. So have you made that point to some of your activist friends, including the anti-nuclear ones? Have you said to them up front, listen, you guys helped to create this situation. And what's the response when you make that kind of argument? I've said it in person. I've written about it for different (laughs) news outlets all over the world, Mm. Australia, France. I've gone on television and I've said it. I just posted a meme about it uh, a couple of days ago, which was about how um, protesters contributed to megatons of carbon by by going against nuclear and it had 17,000 likes and it had a lot of angry <laughs> a lot of angry comments a lot of angry comments but it needs to be said it needs to be heard and I fully hold up my hand and say that I was one of those people I went on those marches I went on those I put on the hazmat suit and did all of that those shenanigans it was what you did back in the day you were anti-nuclear it seemed like a bad thing but it's time to update those opinions a based on evidence and b based on if you really believe that this is a climate emergency and we need all the tools in the kit to solve climate change and we don't want an apocalyptic future, then you have to embrace nuclear. And if you don't, then you are part of the problem. Sorry, but that's what <laughs> I learned. And I learned it the hard way. I had to change my beliefs. I had to be challenged. I had to really look at the data and go, do I have irrational fears? I know it's a hard thing to do, but this kind of ideological tribal thinking 
is the thing that will doom us ultimately. Like for humanity, it's just bad. We don't want to do that with anything. This is bad. Don't do it. <laughs> we know that. And the same people who will say that about, say, vaccines, and they'll be really disparaging about people who won't get vaccines, would then do yeah. it that about nuclear. And yeah. I said, I've said many times, it is all misinformation and it was, it's all ideology. And we have to, we have to be better than that. The, the, the future of humanity does, does depend on this. I think you look at things like space travel, you think, you know, that really depends on people standing up for science, doing, yeah. you know, going by the numbers, not ideology, but numbers. That's it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and actually we space tech, space tech use nuclear tech all the time. We just sent Perseverance Mars rover out right into space. It's got a nuclear battery. No one's protesting that. So we really need to get over this. And, and that was celebrated, right? Humanity was celebrating that. What an amazing achievement. So there's even a disparity there. Like, why is it just tied into all of these other things? It, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And med medicine as well. Medicine creates a lot of radiation, right? And it uses similar tech. So it is just ideology. It is just clever stories that got to people that they then held on to for decades and they've just got to stop doing it. They've got to unpick this stuff. You don't have to listen to me. Just go and look at the research. It's that simple. Fossil fuels. If they, if you want an enemy, fossil fuels are a really good one. And you know what? They're not going to go without a fight. Mm. So join the right side. <laughs> Spiked is publishing more than ever. Articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? So stay on top of everything Spike produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. Right, a couple more questions for you. So the first one on, on that point you made just there about this not making sense, because I find that very interesting because I would say that the the numbers and the facts and the proof is on the side of those of us who are in favor of uh, greater use of nuclear energy. And as you've just described, we, will, we already make extraordinary use of nuclear energy, firstly for the creation of energy in some countries, but also for things like the space race and uh, the exploration of space, which I think is an incredibly good human endeavor, also for medical treatment and so on. So it's there, it's happening. And then the numbers in terms of proof that this is a cleaner form of nuclear energy and that it is safe to dispose of it, that's all there. That can be found. You've done a great job in promoting some of that too over the past few months. So that's the bit that doesn't make sense. So one question I wanted to put to you was the green opposition in particular to nuclear energy. I know it goes beyond greens and there are other forms of opposition to nuclear energy too, but the green opposition to it, it's partly obviously driven by the exaggerated fears that they have about the impact of nuclear power and the impact of nuclear waste. But do you think there's also an element here where, it, where it's driven by a belief that it's simply wrong for humankind to exploit nature's resources? So, And I keep coming back to that argument because I can't think of any other reason why they would have this passionate opposition. We know why they oppose new, uh, fossil fuels. They are polluting. They have this impact. 
But are we now reaching a situation where the, where they actually believe that it is just wrong for mankind, humankind, to dig down into the earth, pull out these resources and use them to create a world of plenty? Is that where we've reached? You know, one of the, but even in that belief that inconsistent, one of the most annoying comments that I get on my tweets is, what about the mining for uranium? Don't you care? Little kids are mining that uranium. And I always say, do you think that lithium used in batteries for solar tech isn't mined? Do you think that any energy source comes without a cost? To me, it seems like we then need to use the most dense energy source that is going to have the lowest land footprint with the cleanest emissions and the cleanest air. And that will always bring you back to nuclear. It will always in all of those areas because it, you know, it lasts longer. Uh, it, it's got less of a footprint. It's impacting less people. Even if you do have to have that terrible process of, yes, people have to mine in other countries. I don't know what the solution is to that. Let's talk about that instead of just saying, let's take the, op- the option off the table and then those people can't have jobs and they'll just live in poverty. You know, it's far more complicated than that. But, um, I do think it's what you said earlier. It comes down to what you said earlier about this kind of weird idyllic notion of like going back to living on the land. Like quite a lot of, quite a lot of, you know, greens do have this. It's, it's very common. And I, I understand it. I do understand it. You know, I've, I go camping. I enjoy it. Well, obviously <laughs> then, I, then I enjoy coming home to my mattress and lighting, <laughs> but, but I understand it in, in quite a hectic world with a lot of mental health issues and a lot of busyness that people think that that might be a solution. But I was on a panel maybe about a year ago with the former leader of the Green Party in the UK. And she made a comment that the UK doesn't have a high quality of life in response to something I said. And the reason she said that was because she said there are mental health problems. And I I honestly had to bite my tongue because I just didn't want to have a fight on this panel. It's not what we were meant to be discussing. But I just thought, how privileged, how privileged. Go and ask my hundred relatives in the Punjab, in rural Punjab in India, if they have a high quality of life, you, you think they don't have mental health issues. Do you know how bad the child mortality is there? Do you, I have a cousin there who is crippled in a chair. He's my age and he's crippled in a chair because the family couldn't get him medication for epilepsy and he had epileptic fits when he was little. Now, if you have that here, and I do have a friend whose daughter has that here, she gets the treatment. She's living a normal life. You wouldn't know she had this problem. They couldn't get it. And it wasn't even that they didn't have money because my parents sent them money for the medication because they didn't want him to have these fits as a baby. They didn't have access. You don't have access when you don't have roads. You don't have access when your hospital is four hours away. You don't have access when there aren't doctors who want to live in these villages. Why would they want to live in these villages? There's a high mortality rate. You'll get bitten by a wild dog and get rabies or you'll get bitten by a snake. They, they don't want to live there. It's dark after dark. You know, it's scary. There are lots of issues. Those people do not want to live there. That is why my parents in the sixties, when they were offered factory jobs in a country they knew nothing about, got on a little boat and were rowed across. Mm treacherous seas, just come here, leave behind everything they knew in their own family. They weren't educated. They could barely speak English. That is how desperate they were to escape that situation and how happy they are now that they raise children who have a high quality of life. We all have good jobs. We're all educated. We all have access to medication. That And they was, they are still sad to this day that they left behind brothers and sisters who couldn't come, who didn't get to come. They didn't get picked from the lottery when they needed factory workers here. And they have to live that reality. That is not a high quality of life. And that is not idyllic living. It is depressing and sad. And actually, 
go and switch places with them if you're that sure that that's the way to live and see see how see how much you enjoy it it's terrible mm-hmm. there's a reason we developed to not live like that there's a reason we stopped being even you know let's go back evolutionary terms we stopped being nomadic because it was easier for us and more convenient to settle down when we had agriculture right we made these choices naturally you can't say oh we should go back to being like that no we made these choices so that our brains could go b- bigger and our children could grow healthier and that's been every step of the way and that is also the role that fossil fuels played and we have to accept that I'm grateful that I have this quality of life because of fossil fuels. I just think now we need to get off of them. We realized that we, we realized that a while ago. And the biggest opposition is to, is in the energy area because so many of our missions are from energy, but also energy will play so many different roles. So you look at India, you look at the UN report that says that 40% of India is going to have trouble with frequent water shortages in the next decade. Like this is really bad, right? You want to talk about bad figures. This is a bad figure. We don't want that. Okay. What's the solution? They could have desalination. You can take ocean water. You can make that drinkable, but it requires huge, yeah. huge amounts of energy. So every time I look at the solutions, it always comes down to energy and even stuff like manufacturing, you know, it's impacted by energy. You can think obviously things like EVs. Everybody wants an electric vehicle. It's not great if it's still powered by coal though, is it? So we, we do have to keep pushing this nuclear message. And, you know, I get a lot of stick for it, but there's also a lot, there's a lot of response and there's a lot of positive response from people who aren't in that they people who do understand that they you know there isn't this like nice kind of living with nature everything's happy they and they want some kind of middle ground and they do care about poverty once you bring up those issues i think the problem is those issues are very rarely discussed and aired because all you get is the you know the very simple kind of arguments that the environmentalist movement has been making for decades and it's very powerful and it does have a lot of money behind it It has a lot of big ngos behind it greenpeace are very powerful and i'm not saying they haven't done good things they've done Mm -hmm. good things in other areas sure but on this they are failing us they are failing us and we need more voices to challenge that and to to move the discussion on so that we can have good outcomes for everybody. That brings me very neatly onto my final question, which is in relation to some of the issues you just raised there, which I think are incredibly important. Uh, One of the things that made me very critical of the environmentalist ideology, not necessarily the idea of having a nice environment, everyone wants a nice environment, but the contemporary environmentalist ideology, one of the things that switched me on to criticising that was when I read a few years ago, a number of years ago, about a carbon offsetting scheme where wealthy people in the West could offset their carbon by making donations to a charity. And that charity was encouraging farmers in India and Africa to use natural methods of farming rather than modern methods of farming. And I wrote a piece years and years ago saying this was essentially a form of eco-slavery. So us Westerners can fly around and have our holidays and live nice lives and drive our cars and so on with a clear conscience because we've paid money to a charity that will encourage a 14 year old boy to tread water on a wooden machine rather than to embrace the kind of modern machinery that we use in the West. And I just thought this is repulsive. This is racist. This is a genuine problem. And so my question for you, I guess, in relation to the work that you've been doing and the arguments that you've been making, do you think it's possible to marry together the kind of universal desire to liberate everyone from poverty so that everyone enjoys an incredibly high living standard with the green 
idea of uh, the, the green ideas that have developed over the past few years? Do you think it's possible to marry those together or do you think we need to break them off? How do you think that's going to play out? Absolutely, it's possible. But also there's a lot of research on this now. If you look at somewhere like Our World in Data, um, they've got they've crunched numbers on economic growth and whether we can ha- sustain that growth and, uh, and, and allow these countries to have that growth and bring down emissions. These are not conflicting things. It's absolutely possible. The research bears it out again and again, but you still hear the arguments that say, no, we can't because it was just, you know, capitalism that ruined everything or whatever, you know, whatever it gets boiled down to. And this, these kind of boiled down messages are very powerful. You know, you've heard it, waste, radiation. You only he- need to hear that, Chernobyl, Fukushima, and you're scared and you have a reaction. And these activist groups are very good and very creative at getting that terminology, climate emergency, right? That came yeah. from Extinction Rebellion. I was there. Net zero, they're very good at getting that language out there, which is why I'm not, I'm now trying to do this with nuclear, where I say nuclear energy is clean energy, you know, phase out the fossils trying to drip drip feed that that terminology in because it's never been done in mm. this way because the scientists don't tend to do it the scientists just stick to the facts and they just you know explain things the way they explain them and i, I kind of think actually needs a bit of an activist edge which is why i founded this organization emergency reactor mm-hmm. which is a climate activist organization which some people will disagree about because it promotes nuclear energy but um if you follow the logic that's exactly what we should be promoting zion thank you very much indeed thank you Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.